This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. 75 years ago, December 7, 1941, the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor plunged the United States into the Second World War. America responded to the day of infamy with what's become known as the greatest generation. Before the last shot was fired, more than 16 million Americans served in uniform. The memory of those times is fading as the veterans pass from the scene. But there are those who have made it their business to record the deeds of these men and women who answered the nation's call. Denise Goolsby has worked as a reporter for the Desert Sun newspaper in Palm Springs, California. The Palm Springs area is home to many veterans who spend their final years in the desert sunshine. Denise spent several years interviewing more than 400 veterans about their wartime experiences. I speak with Denise on today's World Lutheran News Digest about these wonderful people. And now today's Fast Track. I'm Sarah Golseth with news in brief of interest to Lutherans worldwide. Taking the offensive after Election Day setbacks, Planned Parenthood and its allies filed lawsuits in North Carolina, Missouri and Alaska, challenging laws that they view as unconstitutional restrictions on abortion. The attorneys said the lawsuits are a follow-up to a major U.S. Supreme Court decision earlier this year that struck down tough abortion laws in Texas. The restrictions being challenged in Missouri are similar to those that the high court struck down in Texas. They require abortion clinics to meet physical standards for surgical centers and mandate that their doctors have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals. Partly as a result of those laws, only one licensed abortion clinic remains in operation in Missouri. The House Energy and Commerce Committee's Select Investigative Panel announced that they have referred Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast for criminal prosecution to the Texas Attorney General on account of its sale of baby body parts. The panel has also criminally referred Planned Parenthood's closest business partners in the sale of aborted baby parts to various state and local law enforcement. Reggie Littlejohn, president of the human rights advocacy group Women's Rights Without Frontiers, has written an open letter to President-elect Donald Trump urging him to investigate the International Planned Parenthood Federation for what she said is its complicity in communist China's coercive population control policies, including forced abortion. Littlejohn said that because the IPPF receives federal funding, it should be transparent about its operations abroad, including its working in partnership with the Chinese government. The U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Ohio dismissed a lawsuit against the federal government demanding the removal of the national motto, In God We Trust, from U.S. currency. In the opinion, the court dismissed the plaintiff's claims that the use of the national motto on currency violates their rights to free exercise, free speech, and equal protection. World Lutheran News Digest will be back right after these messages. Hi, I'm Pastor Matt Youngblood-Clark from Ascension Lutheran in St. Louis. And I am Pastor Jolly John Lekumski from St. Paul's in New Athens and Trinity in Darmstadt, and we welcome you to listen to Wrestling with the Basics. Matt, 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 let go of me, man. No, no, it's not real wrestling. We're just talking about Bible issues. No. Oh, 9.05 Saturday mornings, 8.50 a.m. KFUO. Hi, I'm 
Pastor William Whedon, LCMS Director of Worship. Jesus said some hard things in John 6, and lots of his disciples turned away and stopped following him. He asked the 12 if they wanted to go too. Peter responded for them all, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Words of eternal life, those are the words your Jesus has for you. Join me for the next broadcast of Thy Strong Word, 11 a.m. Central on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. There's a special place where rare books from times long ago come alive in your imagination. A special place where you can rediscover values that transcend time itself. A special place of adventure, mystery, and drama that's both old and new at the same time. Lamplighter Theater. Saturday mornings at 11 on KFUO Radio. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth across the room to a speaker system in your home or listen on radios that have built-in smartphone cradles. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org on the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the clear gospel message of Christ crucified for our sins. The messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. Usted está escuchando el resumen de noticias Mundo Luterano. This is World Lutheran News Digest. I'm Kip Allen, World Lutheran News Digest host. My guest today is Miss Denise Goolsby. Denise and I used to work together back in our newspaper days at the Desert Sun newspaper in Palm Springs, California. Palm Springs, as people may or may not know, is home to many veterans. It's a good retirement community. And, of course, we're now in the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor Day, 75 years ago this day that the Japanese surprise attack plunged the United States into war. Denise has spent the last few years chronicling the efforts of this greatest generation as they pass away. There are fewer and fewer of them to remember what had happened. But Denise has gone on, and she's she's incorporated these memories into her writing. Denise, could you tell me a bit about yourself and... Uh, what happened? How you got into this? Sure. Well, uh, Kip, thanks for having me on the show. I was with, been with the Desert Sun for almost 14 years as a reporter and uh, most recently as a columnist. Uh, back in 2009, our then editor, uh, Rick Green, got an idea that we should do something special to kind of memorialize the 65th anniversary of the end of World War II. And he knew how much I liked history and our veterans out here, and he suggested that we launch a year-long, well, year, about 13-plus-month uh, program profiling our wo- local World War II veterans. So my very first uh, edition, so in November of 2009, we put out a special section um, announcing the launch of this project uh, for honoring our World War II heroes. Since that time, I've profiled over 450 World War II veterans, uh, mostly men, but some women from all the, uh, the services. And it's it was really an incredible experience. It actually was life-changing because I had the opportunity to talk to so many different people who were living and experiencing a time in our history, which was very pivotal. I mean, it could have gone either way. We had the uh, the Japanese coming at us on the West Coast, and we had the Germans and the submarines coming at us on the East Coast. And I think some people don't realize how close we were to being really invaded on the mainland. And it was a huge history lesson for me. It's been now, what, uh, 
six years of doing this and getting to know these great men and women, and it's given me an even greater appreciation for what they did and the sacrifices they made back in those days. Denise, the thing that really strikes me about these people looking back on it is uh, I've seen some photos, for example, here in St. Louis. Uh, the Post-Dispatch, the local newspaper here, had just published a uh, uh, some pictures about recruitment areas, about recruiting uh, headquarters that were taken the day after Pearl Harbor. And there are lines around the block waiting, you know, of, of young men in, waiting to enlist to join the military. What strikes me is what motivated these young men. Now, you interviewed them. What was their reaction? Was it, was it duty? Was it patriotism? Was it fear? Was it a belief that this had to be done? What was it? Uh, everything you've just described, Kip. It was a duty. It was um, basically, it was a fear of, you know, the country being invaded. It was something in their lives that was occurred when they were young men. Um, there's a lot of patriotism. Uh, you know, some of their family members had gone through World War One and see the horrors of that, and and we didn't want that to to happen again and come on our shores. It was, I think, it's patriotism, uh, love for their country. It was a different time in our history. Everybody pulled together. I mean, the families understood the sacrifices that need to be made. You know, some, you know, sent off numerous children to war. Sons and uh, and some daughters have gone over to uh, France to deal with the D-Day invasion and had to. Uh, you know, deal with the uh, injuries and deaths of a lot of those those soldiers and people that were, um, you know, making such this huge, the biggest invasion, I think, in the history of our country. Um, but I really think it was, um, we had to come together to save our country from being taken over, from our way of life being, um, you know, maybe extinguished. So I think it was that. It was fear, patriotism, love of country. This, this is just what we do. It's not like they gave it much thought. I mean, I talked to many people that went in the next day and enlisted right away, you know, whether they were in high school, whether they are not even finished with college yet. This is what we need to do. This is our duty. Well, I look at my own family. My uh, father held a reserve commission when Pearl Harbor broke out. He had just been married. Uh, he had a young son, my brother, and uh, Pearl Harbor hit, and he wrote to the War Department asking to be put on active duty, and he was put on active duty in February the following year, and he served the entire the entire war in uniform. It just never occurred to him not to, or my mother, to oppose it. It was just something that they had to do. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, thank you to your dad and your family for their service. That's a, that's a huge, we don't even really, can't even really understand what it was like at that time. You know, you read some of the books about Pearl Harbor and what we were doing to prepare, or what the Japanese were doing to prepare, and we were kind of waiting and seeing what was going to happen on the other, you know, side of the world, and we were kind of, you know, caught a little bit off guard. And but everybody rallied, and just to see how the whole war unfolded, you know, through the years and what we do, it, you know, we're at, you know, we're kind of at a deficit. We were not militarily ready at all, and we had to scramble. And the people at home had to, uh, you know, get the engines up and running, and all the uh, factories and turning out the aircraft. It was just incredible. Uh, teamwork and just the way it came together just reading through history is it's kind of a miracle it's just but it, it took a certain amount of people and those were the greatest generation and those were the those people were at the right place at the right time i feel well i know some of the people that you spoke to were the veterans of the tuskegee airmen uh, this was a unique outfit in that it was uh this was at the time when the armed forces were segregated, and this was a an African American fighter unit. And I know that you interviewed some of them. And, and I look at this where this this was a period where institutionalized racism was part of this country. And they responded though, and they they responded with with great patriotism and an and an enormously proud record against the enemy. 
absolutely. I mean, they escorted the bombers. They saved a lot of the bombers. I even heard from some of the guys um, who I interviewed. Um, they couldn't thank them enough. I mean, they were actually escorted by some of the Tuskegee Airmen in the uh, the raids in um, in Europe. And they said they were, like, fearless. They were brave. They, you know, put it all on the line. You know, back home, they're they're not even treated as equal. But, you know, on the in the battlefield and in the skies, they were um, they gave it all they had, which showed great patriotism, like you said. Well, I also look, for example, at the Nisi, the, uh, the first and second generation Japanese Americans. Now, of course, we had part of our national disgrace was this incarceration of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. And yet the most decorated combat regimental team in the United States Army was the 442nd, which was composed entirely of Japanese Americans. And their motto was go for broke, which I'm sure many of us have heard. Yeah, and, and look what they were, you know, facing our country. First of all, they've got this issue of their, you know, their Japanese have been, you know, have invaded us, and they're Japanese Americans, and then some of their citizens have been, you know, put in um, internment camps, and now they're fighting for us. You know, it's sort of like it's. I wonder what they were thinking at the time, but they they did. They put it out there. They were patriotic. They were Japanese Americans, and they. Uh, they fought for the greater good, and they did it unselfishly. And a lot of people here on the West Coast, as you say, in the in the Okachella Valley uh, area, um, a lot of those folks were uh, sent to internment camps and uh, came back. And there's some families still existing here that, uh, you know, remember those days. So um, it, it was really a great sacrifice on the part of the Japanese-Americans to do what they did and do it so bravely and with such patriotism. I'm going to give a little aside here. Uh, in one of my reporting uh, assignments was once when I was living in Ventura County. Uh, that's a, it's a part of the Point Magoo area, and there is a major uh, facility there for uh, naval weapons testing. Well, it so happened that a Japanese warship was going to be putting in for some training, and this was the first time since the way before the war that a Japanese warship had been in American waters. And the Japanese were very, very aware of this, and they had combed their navy for English-speaking sailors. So they actually came ashore, and there was a little ceremony in uh, the town of Oxnard to greet them. And when the Japanese commander came, he was greeted by Miranao Takasugi, Assemblyman <laughs> Sujo Okado, <laughs> and Navy Commander Gordon Nakamura. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. That's great. <laughs> Good research there. I was not aware of that. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with that story. Oh, that's a great story. Did you, were, were there any of the veterans that you spoke to uh, that, that especially stuck out in your mind? Yeah, there there are a number of them. I mean, just the stories they told and the, the experiences and what they had to go through was just, it's just, Unbelievable. And what really does stick out in my mind, um, he was um, uh, a U.S. Navy uh, sailor. His name was Jack Fellies, and he was fighting um, on a ship in the uh, Battle of the Java Sea, which is, you know, another thing with doing this and learning about the war. We're in high school and college. We learn about, you know, the war was fought, you know, in the South Pacific and fought in Europe. But, you know, you don't realize these little islands and these little you know, specks around the country that you've never heard about. The jo I don't think I'd ever heard about the Java Sea, but it was a it was a major battle. He was fighting. They were trying to prevent the Japanese from invading the um, coast of, of Java. 
and the ship was going down. Uh, he got off the ship. As, as he's swimming out there, um, of, he had a buddy that had been um, wounded, and he put him up on a, uh, like a table, one of the tables that just came off the boat, because he was the boat's going down, everything's going down. And he put him on a table, and pretty soon he's trying to swim with him, but he died. And then he said, well, I'm just going to take him to shore. And the shore is quite a few miles off. And then the Japanese warship, you know, turned around. There's a couple of them. And the wave just swept him off, his buddy off the, the table and, you know, to his watery grave, I guess you would say, which is very sad. So now he has to find a way to get to the mainland, so, or the Java coast. So he swims, I think, maybe 12 hours. And he was, you know, totally exhausted. Well, by the time he gets there... The Japanese had already invaded Java, and he was taken prisoner. And the U.S. had sunk one of the Japanese ships that had the um, the horses on it that would be carrying all the, you know, pulling the wagons with the weapons and everything. He said, well, the Japanese people said, that, the soldiers said, well, you sunk our horses, you're our horses now. So they had to lug all this equipment barefoot because he made them take his, their shoes off because the, the uh, Japanese soldiers wanted them. And long story short, he gets up there. He's uh, a prisoner of war in uh, on the in Japan area for three and a half years. Went through some horrible, horrible, uh, you know, torturous uh, situations, kind of like a Louis Zamperini type story, where they're all put in boats for a long time and really terrible um, sanitary situations. They were beat till the, you know, what came out of them. Real, just awful. He saw friends die, and. He came out of the war a different person. He lost like 90 pounds. But, you know, he came back home and persevered. And, you know, it, it formed who he was, but it didn't affect his life in a negative way. He just went forward and did the best he could. And uh, I just admire these guys. And there's a lot of stories like that. It's just survival. There were many like that. One of the things that uh, that you and I were privileged being Palm Springs residents at the time was the presence of the Palm Springs Air Museum. And I know that you've been heavily involved in that. Could you tell us a little bit about that wonderful thing? Oh, my gosh. I was just over there uh, on Saturday, by the way. Um, they are adding a um, a third hangar. It's going to be a mostly Korean-Vietnam-era hangar um, that's going up. Uh, they privately raised $2.25 million. Um, they just poured the foundation, so that should be up and uh, open for displays to go on uh, probably in March. But the Palm Street Air Museum is across the street from the Desert Sun, which, it, and it's a jewel of a location. It has fighter planes, it has bombers, it has all the uh, many of the warcraft that were used in World War II, and now they're adding on to that. So the ones the the fighters, the jet fighters that were used in Korea and Vietnam, and um, uh, Fred Bell and his team over there. Fred's the, um, the executive director. I've learned so much and met so many uh, great veterans from the war that worked there as docents. So I've gotten this even richer education uh, talking with people. And the library they have uh, upstairs is like second to none as far as military history. And I, it, it just, it's just a gem of the desert. And I'm just privileged to, to be a part of that and be, uh, um, be associated with those folks. Now, that is, as I recall, the largest collection of privately owned flyable World War II aircraft in the country. Now, we're talking a B-25, we're talking a B-17, we're talking Spitfire, we're talking Mustang, we're talking Dauntless. We're t- it is absolutely incredible. Anyone who's a World War II buff has to visit this place. Oh, absolutely. And they also, as part of the uh, the new hangar, there's going to be the presidential experience, aviation experience, and 
uh, George H.W. Bush, um, well, he was shot down during the War of the Pacific. He flew a TBM Avenger. They have one of, um, their museum has renovated one of those years ago, and they have that. That's going to be part of the exhibit. Uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush has also donated one of his uh, fighter jackets. It, it's amazing. They, there are over 50-plus planes now that they have there at the facility. They also have uh, every month, I believe, they have a special presentation. Sometimes there'll be lectures by uh, people, veterans. I remember one uh, was actually Jimmy Doolittle's daughter. I attended that one. Oh, wow. That, that was a, great. It really was. I, I remember one thing. You mentioned about the location of the Desert Sun newspaper to the Air Museum. I was in a, of all things, a, a diversity committee meeting one day. <laughs> and the, uh, the windows faced out to the airport. And I looked out the window, and there was a German Heinkel 111 bomber, complete with World War II markings, coming in for a landing. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you never know what you're going to see over there. There are just some wonderful, wonderful things. Oh, absolutely. And they get them up as often as they can, which is really great. That usually is part of sometimes the, the monthly um, lecture series. They try and get some of the planes up, which is which is great. It really is. And, and, and part of it, I think, is, is remembering why the war was fought uh, over and above the fact that we were attacked. This was a case of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, uh, militant uh, Japan. The, these were evil regimes. There's no question about it. And th there really was, uh, I, sometimes it's referred to as the good war. You know, that really was a case of good versus evil. Right, exactly. And the Allied versus the Axis. I remember learning that like as one of the first history lessons. Those Axis was the bad guys, Allies were the good guys. And you know, and then Italy finally came around to our side. But uh, it was, it was just, there was a lot of, you know, bad as always in the wor world. But it was, uh, as is now, it's, you know, kind of a power struggle. People want more territory. They want more power, more control, more money. It's just, some things change. They never change. But at that time, that was, um, it was, we were we were fighting from a position of like I believe in we, you have to have a strong military that's just my position. We had you know we had um, downsized our military because that was part of the uh, agreements from World War One. And while we were doing that, then Germany is upsizing and things get out of control and we're caught off guard. So I don't think that'll ever happen again. But uh, that was a, it was a real learning experience for our country about what. You know, we thought we were very powerful, but when you um, back off of your military support, I think that's what would happen sometimes. Well, I think when uh, the war broke out in Europe in 1939, I remember reading that our army was roughly the size of Belgium's. Wow. That sounds about right. I mean, I read a book about uh, Eisenhower, which he did to put that army back together. It was like, was it 250,000, maybe five? It was, it was not anything. It was in the hundreds of thousands. It was not in the millions. We needed, what, three million, four million or something at some point? I mean, it, Something like that. Overall, I think there were over 16 million Americans actually served wow. in uniform. But uh, when the war broke out, it was just, I don't think we even had a quarter of a million. No, I, I think you're right about that. I believe it was now under a quarter of a million. I mean, we're flat-footed. We did. We thought we were okay. But good thing those uh, the carriers were off the... Uh, off, um, not in port and uh, Pearl Harbor, I think we would have really had a, a bigger problem. Oh, we had. But, uh, it was so close. I mean, because oh, that was cool. their main. That was their main target were the carriers, and it just happened that they were out that day, and they missed the carriers. And uh, 
Yeah, I think it would have been a different story because those carriers did a lot of work. I mean, they were able to get some battleships and a lot of ships up and running, but you had to have something to go with. I mean, we were like, yeah, like nothing. We were wiped out pretty much there and our planes. I mean, we left the there. There was a, a high alert, I guess, for the week before, and then they the high alert went away, and then we pulled the planes back from the bunkers and where they were kind of hidden, and then we put them out, lined them up on the flight line, and there, there we go. They were attacked, you know, with the next day or something. So it was not, um, yeah. No, it was, and of course, we, we badly underestimated the technological capabilities of the Japanese. Uh, their, their, uh, the Zero airplane was better than anything we had at the time, and their Navy pilots, especially, were superbly trained. And again, this was something where maybe it was a combination of racism or arrogance. We simply didn't see them as a serious threat. That's true. And if you read the backstory, you probably have about the training they did to make sure they could drop those um, those torpedo bombs, and they would just you know, shoot in there to the uh, the battleships at the right angle so they didn't get too low, too high. It was really, they went through a lot of training. I was really, uh, you know, amazed at that. And we thought they were too far away, but, you know, they had their, you know, they had their own carriers and were able to uh, launch the planes and, and make the thing. And, yeah, it was, we, I think we were really taken by surprise in more ways than one. You're right. Absolutely. And, uh I know that my father was in the Pacific during the war, and I know some of the stories that he told me as he came back. It was just, uh, it was an incredible thing. I remember he he was uh, uh, in the Philippines during the uh, liberation, and uh, I remember him saying, you know, the guerrillas were coming out of the out of the fields then, out of the forest, and some of these guerrilla fighters were like kids, you know, <laughs> 12, wow. 14 years old, and they'd been in the, the hills fighting fighting Japanese regulars all those years. Oh my gosh, that, they really helped us a lot. We got a lot of help. That was, uh, I think, that was really pivotal for us in that in that part of the country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, there was that movie, The Raid, about the uh, Kadubuan, I believe it was, the prison camp that was liberated uh, right before the Japanese were about ready to to murder the POWs. Yeah. And the Japanese, the uh, Filipino resistance was was critical in that operation. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many untold. You have a really good history and background. I've learned from you today. Um, it's, yeah, people, I would just suggest that people just really look into the backstory of the history. There's so many different things that we really didn't know about. I mean, they only have so much time to teach us in school. I understand that. But the, the stories, the small stories that you don't hear about too much, really, they were the turning point in the war. Well, Denise, we're about out of time. I want to thank you for joining us on, on the program here. And you and I have both been privileged to meet some of these wonderful people and talk to them and see what they have done. And it's it's something that we must not forget. We must remember the, the example that they set for us. Well, thank you, Denise. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you again after all these years. Great talking to you, Chip, and thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.